Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I admitted a couple of weeks ago that I don't like following instructions when I'm putting stuff together. I'd rather just do it. Things should just naturally work the way I think they should work, and if they don't, it's a problem with the design, not with the person putting things together. That's my theory of life in general. Well, if you're not following the directions, you can still confirm that you're on the right path when certain things happen. When you're putting furniture together, for example, you put the pieces together and the holes align where they're supposed to, that's a good sign that you're on the right path. Now, admittedly, if the holes don't align, you could still be right. A lot of times the holes just don't align. But but if they do, you can be assured that you're on the right path. And I think the book of Romans works in a similar way because Paul does something here that we've talked about before through this questioning. And it's kind of unique Throughout the epistle to the Romans, Paul, as he advances his his argument, as he describes the gospel and how it works, he's constantly pausing to entertain questions, right? He's anticipating what you're going to think, and he's asking the question for you and answering it. And that kind of drives forward the doctrine. And so that's what he's doing here. He's, He's asking a question that arises naturally out of what we've been studying. We've been looking at uh, the mystery of God's election and the way that God chooses people for salvation and whether or not that's just, whether or not it's the right way to do things, all of those kinds of questions. And when you have that kind of a conversation, a question like you have in verse 19 naturally arises. And when it arises, it gives you confirmation, right? If you're talking about the gospel out in the world, if you're talking to people about the way that Jesus works, the way that God does things, and they start asking you questions like this, you can be sure that the gospel that you're talking about is the same one that Paul is talking about. If people say to you, wait a second, wait a second, how can God still find fault with us if no one resists his will? Like, if God is as sovereign as you say he is, if God is so sovereign that he's sovereign over the details of election, as we've seen in the womb before the children are born, if that's how powerful he is, then I've got a problem to present to you. If he's that much in control, then how can he hold anybody responsible for their actions? If God is in control of everything, then surely it is wrong for him to to punish anyone for their sin, to hold anybody responsible because isn't ultimately God in charge? Like, didn't he decide all of this stuff? How can he blame me? How can he find fault with me? There are ways of talking about the gospel, ways of talking about Jesus where no one will ever ask you a question like that. That'll just never come up. No one ever would ever dream of asking questions like that. And I would suggest that those ways of talking about the gospel are, at best, incomplete. They're leaving stuff out that Paul says goes with it. If we're not encountering these kinds of objections, we're just not talking about the same thing that Paul is talking about. 
what that means is when you encounter the objections, don't be demoralized. Don't be frustrated that, that people have these kinds of questions. Feel some confirmation, some validation, because this is an example of the holes lining up. This means you're on the right path. You're thinking about the gospel the way that Paul is thinking about it. Now, Paul asks the question, and he answers it, as he's been doing. But here he changes things up. When you look at the answer that Paul gives to this question, he does not give the kind of answer that you're expecting. But he gives a very different kind of answer. And the difference in that answer betrays the fact that here Paul detects a spirit underneath this question. This isn't just a philosophical question, in other words. This is a question with attitude. You know how that works, right? Sometimes you can ask a question because you genuinely don't know. You don't understand. When I was a kid, my mom had all these unreasonable expectations, all these rules for for the young people in our, our, our house. Like She wanted us to clean things up, for example, which that wasn't what we were good at. We were good at, at tearing them apart. And so she was always expecting us to clean up messes, to do all this kind of stuff. You know, those were her expectations, and we, we never lived up to those expectations. We were kind of uh, messy and that sort of thing. And, and I remember inquiring about the reasons behind her rules. My mom would say, you've got to clean up. And I'd say, why? Why? And she would give some kind of unsatisfactory answer. You know, the house is messy and it makes us all miserable. I'd say, why? Why? And at a certain point, she stopped answering my question with, with like logical answers, philosophical answers, and she started answering with something kind of like threats. Something kind of like, if you keep going down this path, you're going to get punished because you're not asking questions because you want to know. You're asking questions because of your rebellious heart. And those kind of questions get different answers than philosophical questions do, right? Well, Paul senses some attitude on our part. And so when we ask the question, if God is so powerful, how can he hold anybody responsible? Paul kind of switches tracks. Instead of doing philosophy with us, there's, well, there's a little bit of threatening that goes on, a little bit of uh, reminding of, of whose boss that you see happening. Now, if, if I had to put into words the question under the question, like the spirit of, of that question, you know, it, it, it's encapsulated, I think, in a sentiment that you hear a lot these days. And it's this idea that if there is a God, he has a lot to answer for. If there is a God, he has a lot to answer for. If God is so sovereign, if God is so powerful, that, then honestly... He needs to account for himself because the world is so messed up and there's so much suffering, so many bad things happening that if there is a God, if the God that you're talking about is real, man, I wouldn't want to be him because he is going to be held to account, that idea. Now, when you hear people say things like that, it's impious, but doesn't it resonate on a certain level? You understand, right? You can see the same things that they can see. You look at the world and you see the same things, have the same fears that they have, the same suffering, the same injustice. And, and 
honestly, sometimes you don't want to talk too openly about your faith for fear that people will ask you questions like this, will challenge you in this way. Because secretly you agree, God does have a lot to answer for. And he's going to have to do the answering because honestly, I, I don't know how to answer these questions. I'm not sure how to justify the ways of God to man because he's done a lot of stuff that I simply can't explain. So you get the idea. It can be hard. It can be hard when you sympathize with where the question is coming from. You share the attitude that the question originates in. It's especially hard, though, for those of us who start believing in the sovereignty of God the way that Paul does because we don't have that easy out that a lot of people do. Right? For some Christians, the answer is actually pretty simple. Someone says, how can God find fault if no one resists his will? You just say, hold on there. I never said nobody resists his will. Everybody resists his will. God is the most frustrated person in the world. God has all this stuff that he wants, and he's never getting it. He's constantly having these good desires, and his desires are thwarted. He has all of these wonderful plans for us, but we just won't cooperate. What do you mean no one resists the will of God? Of course they do, constantly. There is nothing less achieved in this life than the will of God. It's interesting that Paul doesn't answer the question that way. That's not how Paul responds. Paul could very easily say, oh, wait a second, you misunderstood. Of course I don't mean that, that God is so powerful that, that there's a, a hidden will of God that is always fulfilled. Of course I'm not saying that. He could easily say it. He should. He should if he doesn't believe in the implications of the question. But he doesn't. And that's very suggestive. The Apostle Paul doesn't use that line of argument because he doesn't believe that. He doesn't think much of that argument, that answer. He's got a different way of answering this question, a, a more biblical way, as we'll see a very Old Testament way of approaching it. So as we think about this, to try to make this, this complex idea simple, uh, I'm just going to give you my three points in advance. So this is the logic that we're going to try to pursue. First of all, when a creature challenges the creator, there's a deeper problem than mere philosophy. When a creature challenges a creator, there's a deeper problem than just philosophy. That's number one. Second, when you challenge God, don't be surprised if he challenges you back. When you challenge God, don't be surprised if he challenges you back. And finally, if you think that God has a lot to answer for, he's not the only one. If you think God has a lot to answer for, he's not the only one. Let's start with creatures and creators. When a creature challenges the creator, there's a deeper problem than mere philosophy. The question in verse 19 is pretty simple. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If God's will is irresistible, then there is no basis for holding people accountable for their actions. And the fact that he doesn't answer in the usual way, to me, is very interesting. But he doesn't say, I never said that, you misunderstood. He doesn't say, oh, no, 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 please, please, don't, don't think I'm one of those Calvinists. Instead, the way that he answers suggests that he accepts the premise 
of the question. But he doesn't challenge the, the wording of the question or the, the understanding that it's based upon. He concedes the premise. On the level of election, God gets his way. The level of the, the hidden counsel of God, the, the plan that operates above our plans, God gets his way. And yet, he does justly hold us accountable. How does he answer? If he doesn't get God off the hook, if he doesn't back off, water down that idea of God's sovereignty, what does he say? Well, he answers the way my mom answered when I asked too many why questions, right? When he sensed the attitude, the spirit behind the question, he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The question really is a question about justice. Can God justly hold people responsible? And if you talk about justice in a court of law, you have to begin by establishing jurisdiction. You have to find who's the judge who can rule over these matters, and also does the plaintiff have standing to bring the case? And, and that's really what Paul is questioning here in talking about molders and, and those who are molded. He's questioning whether there is a court that has jurisdiction to judge the actions of God, but more importantly, whether you have standing to bring a case against God. Paul's saying basically as a plaintiff, you have no standing. Not just you have no case, but you have no standing. Like you don't actually have a, a place to stand to criticize the ways of God. And specifically, what, what Paul is asserting here is what in theology we call the creator-creature distinction. Right? He's talking about a, a, a creator who makes things, and as a result, as he molds and shapes them, he has a right over them. He has a right to make them as he wants to make them, to, to give them the purpose that he desires for them. And then Paul says, does the thing that is made have the right to answer back and say, why have you made me like this? Why is this my purpose? You might think about it that way. If God has created us and given us a purpose, do we have the right to go back to him and contest that purpose? Say, wait a second. No, no, no. You've made me this way, but I want to be that way. Paul says, not only no, but that's kind of nonsensical. That's not the way pottery works. You don't understand the situation that you're in. You don't understand what it is to be a creature made by a creator. This is not Paul coming up with a new way of answering these questions. This is Paul leaning on an old way of answering that comes from the book of Job. If you look at the book of Job, starting in verse 38, when God enters into the conversation, God starts asking these kinds of questions, creator-creature questions. It's kind of interesting. As Job and his friends have been talking about suffering and the ways of God, and, and Job has asked all of these big questions, when God arrives, God does not begin by giving answers. God doesn't come groveling and say, Job, look, you've raised a lot of valid points, and I get it. I need to have some answers. Instead, God enters into the conversation. He starts asking, where were you when I made everything? And, and he keeps asking. It's, it's kind of, if it weren't God, you would say it's a little belligerent. 
Because Job gives up, and then God keeps asking over and over again. And God enumerates all the stuff he made and keeps going back and saying, when I made this, where were you? Oh, can you explain this to me? Over and over again, in order to establish the point that there is a huge gulf between the God who created all things and a very righteous man who is still a creature, still a human being. And Job doesn't have standing to challenge God. And that's what God establishes through these questions. There's a number of passages that I'm going to mention as we go forward, and I would encourage you to take a note of these and go back and read them and kind of meditate on them in the context of Romans 9. So Job 38 is one, and you'll keep reading for chapters, but but you'll see what Paul is doing here and, and how very Old Testament this way of thinking is. Now, Paul develops the creator-creature distinction through the metaphor of a potter and clay. Right? The idea of the potter giving shape to the clay. He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The potter makes two kinds of vessels, two kinds of cups. Doesn't he have a right to make one for one thing and one for another? Isn't that within the scope of the potter's right to do that? You might think to yourself, wow, Paul, that's some creative thinking. That's interesting. But again, Paul's not coming up with this stuff himself. He's receiving it from the Holy Spirit through the prophets. So what he's doing here is developing a metaphor that actually the prophet Isaiah first brought to light. Here's another uh, couple of passages to make note of. Isaiah 29:16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? It's absurd, Isaiah says. This turns things upside down. For the thing that is made to challenge and question the creator, the question whether he even exists, whether the creator has any wisdom or understanding in the way he does things, this is insane, Isaiah says. In Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. You criticize the work of the potter? Do you have the right to do that, Isaiah asks? And the answer is emphatically no. This is what's called putting you in your place. In case you're wondering what the rhetorical strategy is, this is not hearing you out, empathizing, letting you know I hear your questions. This is reminding you of who you are and how strange and unnatural the questions you're raising are. You can see Isaiah emphasizes, as we've talked about already, God's rights, God's freedom over what he has made. Right? God has the, def- the right to define what he's made, to give his creation its purpose. We don't have the right to change that. God has the freedom of the creator, the freedom from any challenge from below. God is free of the need to justify himself, in other words to us. Not that he never does. Sometimes he condescends, but not because he has to, not because he has a lot to answer for, but because he chooses 
to meet us where we're at. When the clay questions the potter, it reveals that the clay is deceived about its true situation. The clay just doesn't know how reality works. That's the idea, right? Putting us in our place. And then Paul goes deeper. He gives us a hypothetical, but it's almost as if he's testing us. Like you understand, if we're talking pottery, that that the potter has the rights and the freedom, not the clay. You get that. But now let me push you a little farther. If God is the potter, what if? What if? And he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So, when you read this passage, because of the way that Paul introduces it with that what if, with that hypothetical, I think what you have to do is treat this carefully, right? Because it's unclear to us, is, is Paul saying what if, and what he really means is, it is so. Like, I'm presenting this as a hypothetical, but in fact, what I'm doing is telling you this is the way it is. Or is he honestly just, just pushing us? Like, like, could you object, If this were the case, if God had created this way, would you have any objection to the justice of it? Either way, though, I think we arrive at the same place. What we see in this context of election is is two created vessels, one for wrath, one for mercy. And we also see a motivation that God has that is uh, revealed, a desire to show his wrath and to make known his power. Now, You have to remember where we started with wrath in the book of Romans. In Romans 1, God's wrath is revealed against sin. So when Paul speaks of wrath here, he's not talking about the emotion of unhinged anger, right? Not that God is so red in the face that that he just had to let it all out, that kind of thing. He's talking in terms of justice, like there's a just consequence for our sin. Like this justice needs to be shown. God wants to demonstrate his justice. That's what he's talking about. And because he wants to do this, and because he wants to also show his mercy, he has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We're told in other parts of Scripture about God's patience, that God has endured with long-suffering a state of events that he does not condone, but the reason that he's done it is because he desires to show mercy that he wants to show mercy to generations as yet unborn. And as a result of that, he puts up with things that in his character he could justly extinguish. And who would we be to question? That's the idea. God is patiently bearing with these vessels of wrath so that his mercy might be shown to these vessels of mercy which have been prepared beforehand for glory. If you've been following along with the Westminster Confession in Sunday school, we talked about this when we talked about chapter 3, the difference in the way that we talk about God's uh, election to salvation and what happens to those who are not elect. And so when we talk about that election, we talk about it very actively. And when we talk about the the rest, we talk about it uh, passively in the sense that God passes over 
So all human beings are sinners, justly deserving condemnation. Out of that mass of deserving punishment people, God has chosen to show mercy to some, to demonstrate that mercy. And Paul's saying, if that's the case, can you justly criticize this? Does this not make sense? Does the potter not have the right to do what he chooses to do with the clay? These vessels of mercy are God's chosen people. And he illustrates this with these quotations from the Old Testament, from Hosea first and then from Isaiah. He gives us kind of a positive and a negative. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So connecting back with with the question that begun began the chapter for us, he confirms that this, this Jew and Gentile salvation is actually not a, a, an innovation of Christianity, that this is actually baked into God's plan of salvation from the beginning, and you can see it testified to in the Old Testament. So first we go to Hosea, where we see the positive case. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So those are actually two quotes from Hosea, and they're out of order. So the first one is from Hosea 2.23, and the second one is from Hosea 1.10. What's interesting is, Peter also makes use of the language of Hosea here. When we went through the two epistles of Peter, you may remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, when Peter starts by talking about the church as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, he uses this language of, of being my people, the sons of the living God. This is uh, a good indicator that what Paul is talking about here, it's not... Pauline doctrine, it's apostolic doctrine. Like all of the apostles are in agreement over the Old Testament character of this doctrine. If you go back to Hosea chapters 1 and 2 and you look at this passage in context, it's really fascinating. Uh, You know the story of Hosea. Hosea has this this, uh, wife of, of dubious practice and has some children whose status is 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 uh, interesting and they are given these horrible names uh one in particular uh lo ami is uh given the name well lo ami which means not my people in hebrew lo is a negation and ami would be my people so not my people is this child's name so you're born into the the chosen race to a prophet of God and the name that that you're assigned by God is not my people and you've got it pretty bad your sister she actually has it worse her name is no mercy so but God does this for a reason and and it's reversed so the children who receive the name not my people and no mercy God shows mercy to them And the ones who are said to be not my people, God declares, you are my people. And you're thinking, wow, what is that all about? If you're reading Hosea without Christ in mind, it can be a little baffling. 
But here it comes into focus. Like what we're seeing here is a prophecy concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles who were not my people, who were outside that, that, that covenant line through natural succession. But now God has declared, you are my people. That's the positive case, that glorious language of conversion and inclusion. But then you get the other side of it from Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, so very numerous, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. I think here Paul is preaching as much to himself as he is to us because he has a heart for the conversion of the Jews, for his brothers and sisters in the flesh. And he's reminding himself and us that what is happening in his lifetime is not a surprise, that it's actually there in the prophets. In the same way that the inclusion of the Gentiles is present in the Old Testament, also this, this language of, of a remnant of Israel is present as well. So that what he's seeing, that the nation of Israel rejecting the Messiah, this was actually prophesied. And yet there is hope in this. I think when we hear the word remnant, we think very negatively, like remnant is just a few. Remnant is, is just a tiny number. Um, but in fact, that there is a remnant is a testimony to God's grace. Because had it not been for that grace, there would have been nothing. It would have been nothing. And again, it's Isaiah who says this. And these are chilling words when you consider how much like Abraham's intercession, Paul's intercession is. When Isaiah predicts, this is in the end of our text, our last verse there. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So in a sense, you've come full circle where the prophet Isaiah is acknowledging that had it not been for the grace of God, there would have been none of us saved. There would have been none of us saved, no remnant at all. And yet by the grace of God, not only is a remnant saved from ethnic Israel, but also those who are not his people, he has called his people. So you get the pieces coming together there. We'll get more into Paul's hope for Israel as we continue in chapter 10. But that gives us enough to really think about what Paul is saying here and and what the significance of this answer should be to us. When you challenge God, don't be surprised if he challenges you back. We talk about this all the time. We do want grace to be a church where it's okay to ask questions. And and honestly, some questions are are questions grounded in, in not knowing. Other questions are questions grounded in rebellion. And, and I still want this to be a place where you can ask rebellious questions too. Where you can ask the kind of questions that, that Paul is entertaining here. He he puts it in scripture, so it must be that these are the kinds of questions that are appropriate to us. But but remember. When you challenge God, don't be surprised if he challenges you back. It's not just the question that's in Scripture, it's the answer, too. And so that, too, is is part of the equation. When you have these questions, expect 
that the answer from Scripture is going to put you in your place, is going to remind you of your createdness, right? There's some challenges to us in this that I want you to think about. First, we're challenged to think differently about who God is in relation to us. This passage is a challenge to us to remember who we are in the eyes of God. And I'm not thinking here specifically of the idea of, well, we are God's children, uh, we are God's special people. I want you to think specifically of the fact that we are his creatures. We are his creature, and he is the creator. Because sometimes when we know we're loved, we allow that knowledge to let us overstep the bounds. Right? You've experienced this. If you're a parent, you've been on the receiving end of this, or because your children know they lo- that you love them, they can get away with anything and take advantage of it, right? And we can do the same thing with God. If we know that we're loved by him, we can take advantage of that knowledge. But here, the challenge is to remember what we are. Remember what it means to be his creatures. As long as you're thinking about God as as some sort of super powerful being who exists on your level, that you can kind of push back and forth with and argue with, and sometimes he's right and sometimes you're right, and you can learn from each other, that kind of thing. As long as that's the way you're thinking about God, that he's subject to your judgment, then you're not thinking of God at all. Because that's not who God is. And occasionally, we get moments of insight that reveal that to us. Occasionally, we walk over that line and we say things, we feel things, we express things, we realize, oh, wait, it's God I'm talking about. I've overstepped the bounds. If you think that Paul is dodging the question, by the way, if you think that that he doesn't have an answer to this question, that's not what's going on here. He has an answer. He's not appealing to God's authority just to shut you up because he can't think of a better answer. What he's doing here is he's taking seriously the challenge. He's taking seriously the fact that if you're asking questions like this, you have forgotten what it means to be created, and you need to be reminded. God speaks to you as your creator, and he speaks to you as a creature. And if you don't remember that, you won't understand. God doesn't take you into his confidence as his equal. He doesn't grovel before you and beg for a hearing, hoping that you will approve of what he has done, that you will understand his rationales and his justifications. He doesn't concede your point and then try to defend himself. He rejects the arrogance that leads you to think that you can put him on trial and judge him. That's one challenge, to think differently about who God is in relation to us Secondly, we need to stop judging God by our own standards. I mean, we shouldn't judge him at all. But when you're thinking about God's work and how it works, when you're trying to understand him, you have to realize he cannot be understood on your terms. He has to be understood on his. The good thing about this is God hasn't hidden anything from us. God hasn't uh, tucked away the way that he is somewhere where we can't find out. It's actually all over scripture. 
He's revealed himself very clearly and plainly. As Paul has demonstrated by quoting all of these passages from the Old Testament, none of what Paul is talking about is hidden knowledge. This is all available to to people who, who know Scripture, who read what God has revealed. Right? That's the challenge, though. God has put it out there, but we have to listen. God has revealed it, but we have to look and see and understand and believe. I have this happen to me a lot where people come and, and ask questions and say, like, you never talk about this. And I say, well, you know, we did talk about that in Sunday school last week, and we did talk about that here. And I talked about this last year and that, and, and, and like, it's all there. But you would have to go and, and listen to it when it was recorded. Or, shocker, you'd have to be there. You'd have to be there. You'd have to be present. That's the way it is with the things of God. Right? A lot of the stuff we think of as, as inaccessible mysteries, no one ever told me this. Like, How could I possibly have known? It's like, well, yeah, you could have known. You just had to be there. You just had to read. You just had to open it up and look. But it's a challenge, right? And Paul is saying this stuff was there. You should have known. This shouldn't come as a shock to you. But it does. It does because we need that challenge. And the final challenge is the final point. If you think God has a lot to answer for, he's not the only one. He's not the only one. Sometimes you need to consider whether the person you're questioning is actually God and not yourself. We do this thing as human beings. Psychologists call it projection, where you kind of accuse other people of the thing that you're guilty of yourself. You take your faults and you externalize them. You take your corrupt motives and you attribute them to other people to kind of uh, see them in that light. I think sometimes the rebellion, the attitude, the accusations that we bring against God reveal not so much the ways of God as, as the condition of our own hearts, our own fears and convictions. And we say God has a lot to answer for. Okay, fine. You hear people say that and it resonates, fine. God has a lot to answer for. The problem is he's not the only one. He's not the only one. You have a lot to answer for too. And that's the thing we don't want to think about. That's the reality that we don't want to think about. That we have a lot to answer for. We've done a lot that we cannot justify. We've done a lot that we would not want to be thrown out in open court. We've done a lot of things we wouldn't want to have to defend. So when we challenge God and say, you've got a lot to answer for, just remember, so do we. The question is, who has the power to answer? I said earlier, you shouldn't say things like that about God. You shouldn't attack God in that way. You shouldn't judge God in that way. But it's not because God can't answer. It's not because God can't make his case. He does. He does give an answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. The person of Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, is the answer to all of it. Why is there suffering in the world? Why does God permit what is permitted? Why doesn't God fix 
everything? Why doesn't God do justice? All of those questions that we have that percolate inside of our minds, it's not as if God doesn't answer those things. He answers them emphatically in Christ. If you're sitting there saying, why does God permit this? Why doesn't he fix all of this? What do you think Jesus is all about? Jesus is God's answer to this question. Jesus is the answer. And there's no better answer than Christ. How will God answer for the suffering and the injustice and the brokenness? How will God answer for the pain? That's easy. He answers in the cross. He answers in the cross. But the problem is, God's not the only one with a lot to answer for. We have a lot to answer for, too. How will we answer? How will we answer for the suffering that we've caused? How will you answer for the pain that you've inflicted? What answer can you give for those things? Well, the good news is you can give the same answer that, that, that God gives. The, the grace of Jesus, simply put, is just this. That when it comes to, to your day in court, when it comes to justifying yourself and saying, you know, how do I answer for the bad things that I've done? God is giving you Jesus to be your answer. When your faith is in Christ, that question is answered for you. You answer with the righteousness of Jesus, which becomes yours by faith. So yeah, Paul is putting us in our place. But that's not such a bad thing. He's not just humbling us. Through that humbling, he's showing us the only path to exaltation, which comes in clinging to the cross of Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.